following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Great. Well, good morning. Mike's on. I'm going to wander, so I can, I can really walk anywhere, which is great. What we're going to do is we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, we're going to look at the life of David, but I want us to begin with one of the most famous incidents in his life, which is uh, his combat with Goliath. Now, I've got a little thing I need to get off my chest, and that is a little... I'm, I'm, I'm angry, okay? You know, um, we had someone on the counselling course, didn't we, up at DTS? They can maybe help me. Um, and, yeah... <laughs> Only a little bit. But I'm slightly frustrated about the way we tell Bible stories to children. I think we make two sort of mistakes when we tell Bible stories to children. And it turns up in our story Bibles. One is we miss out the details that are there. So people, when they read the story of David and Goliath, don't hear about the cheese, which is a key part of the story, as we're going to find out. Secondly, we find out that when you look at children's Bibles, often they'll add details in that aren't there. So if you read the parable of the prodigal son, you know all about the things he did when the Bible just passes over that really quickly. It just says he spent his time in you know, riotous or wanton or prodigal living. It doesn't you know, tell you much more because sin is such a boring subject. It's not going to tell you about that. You know, I mean, you're never better off after hearing a story of sin. So um, anyway... Let's uh, read this really quite long chapter, uh, but it's, it's just totally wonderful. And I want us to uh, look at some of the details. Now, on your sheet, you've got on the front a sort of series of factual questions you might want to try and follow uh, as we go through, probably not as we read, uh, and, or you could do it if you want to follow the factual questions, uh, just to sort of keep you awake and noticing details, because there's lots of detail in here. On the second side, it's going to be more how we apply this to our lives. So here we are. 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines, I say Philistines, you say Philistines, but we mean the same people, okay? Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. That's about nine foot six or so. Um, He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels, which is, uh, I only know it in stone, nine stone. We got 14 pounds to a stone. It's about an average woman, let's say, in weight. Um, uh, Average... Yeah, I mean, not... You you get the idea. Okay, and he had um, bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and a shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, David was a son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. The names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed the father's sheep. At Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So you've got David traveling back and forth and the Philistine traveling back and forth. It's just the Philistine's not going quite as far. And Jesse said to uh, David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of the parched grain. Oh, delicious. I love parched grain. Um, <clears throat> and, and the ten loaves and carry them to them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses. To the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. 
Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the, sh- uh, the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went and Jesse, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in the charge of the keeper of baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. All the men of Israel, when they saw that the man fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who comes up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who gives him, uh, who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make the man's, uh, the fa- his father's house free in Israel. That means free from taxes. <laughs> that, is big. that is big, yeah. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall we done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? <laughs> but who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to these men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Do you know the answer to that? Oh, with a keeper, <laughs> yes. Um, I know the presumption and the evil of your heart. For you've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him and towards another and spoke the same way. And the people answered him as before. Now, when the words of da- that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before uh, Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail um, because of him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it from his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, or mane, if you like, (laughs) and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be just like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the paw of the Philistine. Oh, hand and paw are the same word in Hebrew. So you just change it from paw to hand when you're talking about an animal or a Philistine, if you like. Um, And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor, put a helmet on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go in these, I've not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David, and his shield-bearer was in front of him. And when the Philistine looked at him, he saw David, he disdained him, for he is but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Goliath, it's not the stick you need to be worried about. Anyway, but he just seems to see the stick. Anyway, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. What a feast. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the beasts, wild beasts of the earth. That really is a feast. And all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel and all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword or spear, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. When the Philistine arose and came, he drew near to meet David, and David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag, took out a stone, and slung slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. By the way, all the action basically takes place in one verse. You know, so that's it. 
could have really strung that out, you know, gone, gone in slow motion, but they didn't. Um, you know, and, and the stone was going through the air. And Anyway, um, <clears throat> so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled, and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shatariim, which means two gates, and they've actually found a city with two gates, very unusual city, uh, um, gates on both sides, one, you know, um, as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put the armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, and the head of the Philistine was in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, we'll just start with that last bit. People are sometimes a bit puzzled. You know, why on earth doesn't Saul know who his uh, musician is? But the question he constantly asks is not, what's his name, but whose son are you? He's forgotten the father's name again and again and again. Um, He has actually had a bit of correspondence with Jesse, but the key emphasis is, it's his father he's going to get yeah, father's house that's going to get intermarried with Saul's house. You really need to know, you know, someone's lineage. That's the first thing, you know, one thing to, you know, when someone gets engaged, your daughter gets engaged, you know, want to know about their family, don't you? So there we are. Okay, let's uh, just start out what's going on. So what we have is Goliath. He's very big. He's a man of huge uh, military experience. And he's also got the latest in modern armor. He's got this sort of chain mail or flexible armor on him he's got greaves covering his shins he's got a helmet uh he's pretty well covered he's also got a large shield and the shield bearer to carry it now this is not an armor bearer who like stands behind you in the combat and says what what weapon do you want oh my master and hands him there actually it says he's standing in front of him now we know that there are two sorts of shield because when we look at the shields that um, Solomon had made in the temple, there are two different words for shield. And when we look at the different numbers of shekels in the two sorts of shields, we know that this is the bigger sort. So if you can think of a man with a very big shield in, in front of him, someone covering him, and he's got all this defensive armor, you can see it's pretty hard to get at him. Then what, what we look at what he's got. He's got offensive weapons he's got the sword he's got the javelin and he's got a spear and the spear is described as having a shaft like a weaver's beam you sometimes look on greek pottery and you can see a man with a javelin like this and they've got a little loop at the base of the javelin which is where they put their their uh, fingers um, so that they can fire it more accurately so the point is with a spear or a javelin you can actually throw and strike someone at a distance and what we see about this spear is that it has a very heavy um iron tip so most of the time i think this is uh, bronze age when bronze is the main sort of stuff but they f- they do have iron but it's a really special stuff to have and it's going to go through anything so this iron head is so heavy it's going to hit you to the ground but it's also going to go through whatever armor you have so we've got a man of immense stature immense uh, military experience we can also get you before you get at all close to him and that's the whole comprehensive system that he's got in other words he is a really terrifying uh person to encounter because you're just not going to get close you're not going to be able to achieve anything so that's the first uh passage and uh, up to verse 11 and he is defying the armies of the living god then we have a sudden change of scene and we've got david who's going back and forth from uh working for saul and uh working as um a shepherd He's the little son, and so he's got the unimportant job, which is looking after sheep, which is just an incredibly boring and somewhat dangerous job. I mean, uh, basically, if you're supposed to look after sheep and, uh, and you get wild animals come, uh, then you get to fight the wild animals with no one watching. 
Great. I mean, wouldn't it just great to have that on YouTube? You know, the exploits of the wild animals, but no one's seeing it at all. They don't really care uh, about that. And so he's going back and forth. It's really interesting. He's just got anointed by Samuel, the prophet, in the previous chapter. As soon as he got anointed, he starts getting a part-time job in the royal court, which is just like coincidence. No. Uh, What we're seeing is how... Straight after getting anointed, he gets a part-time job in the royal court. Um, then shortly afterwards, he's going to be marrying the king's daughter. You know, and, and so we find uh, things really start happening with the anointing of God. But just by sheer coincidence, Jesse decides he's going to send David. Did he have anyone else he could have sent? Sorry? He could have sent a servant. We know that because, after all... David leaves the sheep with a keeper. He could have done that. But just by sheer coincidence, he happens to send David. And David arrives, and uh, this is when uh, the battle line is going out for battle. It seems that, you know, this has been going on for 40 days. There may be skirmishes. There may be dead bodies on the ground. But there's also this sort of standoff. They're each trying to keep their military advantage of, uh, uh, up on the hill. Although we, we know the big Philistine is coming down because he says, I want someone to come down and fight with me. So he's standing in the valley uh, in between. And so that's uh, the way it's all described. And they're going out for battle, and of course, David has these gifts. Now, what, what gifts does he have to bring to the brothers? What food? Parched grain. Now, that's pretty quick. Uh, it's pretty unprocessed. Um, I guess it's durable. Not really delicious. Um, then we got loaves of bread. Well, that, that, that's better. That, that's good. Ten loaves of bread. Uh, uh, what about... The commander of the army, you know, the commander of the thousand. What's he get? Ten cheeses, yeah. That sounds a little bit nicer, doesn't it? I remember, you know, you give t- the nice gifts to the really important people, uh, you know, uh, in life. This is a theme we're going to see going through this passage, by the way. Um, and what we're going to see is that, um, yes, Jesse is showing favoritism. He's looking at how important someone is, and he's showing favoritism in light of that. And that will be something we'll see going through this. Of course, where do you get the cheese from? It's probably sheep's cheese or goat's cheese, isn't it? Uh, After all, uh, Jesse has lots of those. So as they're going out to battle, along comes David, and they start talking about the reward. What three things are the reward? Tax break break for the whole family, yeah. Anything else? Wife. Wife, okay, and... Money. Okay, great wealth. So we got those three things, and the reward is actually repeated three times in the passages. We're going to see lots of threes, you know, three weapons for, um, uh, for Goliath, three times the rewards repeated, um, and uh, three parts of the reward, and so on. Great storytelling helps you also remember the details. It's not that it didn't happen like that, but they really have made it so that it's easier to remember the details, which is why we really should tell the kids all of it. Now, as David is inquiring about the reward, um, someone gets angry. Who gets angry? The older brother. Who's the older brother? Okay, and let's look at how the older brother gets angry. So uh, he, it's very interesting. Uh, he's, he's there in verse 28. Now Eliab, the oldest brother, heard when he spoke, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why did you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Now this is a diff- difficult balancing act. Because Eliab needs to get angry and needs to be really concerned about the welfare of the sheep. But he also needs to belittle his brother's job and therefore say, few sheep, right? Uh, So, you know, it's a difficult balancing act, but he manages to do that. You know, with whom have you left those few sheep? It's really important, but there aren't many of them, uh, if you like. (laughs) I know the presumption and the evil of your heart. You've come down to see the battle. Now, that's very interesting, isn't it? What's Eliab been doing the last 40 days? Yeah, he's been doing a bit of, you know, watching battle, hasn't he? Not doing much battle. Um, so, and he also knows the evil of David's heart. Now, what do we know about Eliab's heart? The, the Bible actually tells us. Sorry? No, no, doesn't sound very good right now, but I want you to think of another passage in the Bible that tells us something about Eliab's heart. Anyone got it? Sorry? He got passed over by Samuel in the previous chapter. That's right. So we need to look back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Because what happens is Eliab is an outwardly impressive person. 
And what happens when Jesse brings his sons before Samuel? Samuel's impressed. But what does God say? God says this. Well, let's begin at 1 Samuel 16, verse 6 and then 7. When they came, he, that Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. He's a tall guy because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Wow. The Lord has seen the heart of Eliab. And now Eliab has seen into the heart of David, who is a man after God's own heart. And what has Eliab seen in the heart of David? Has he seen the heart of David truly? No, he's actually just seen a mirror reflection of his own heart. This is an interesting dynamic, isn't it? That sometimes we can look at people and attribute to them all sorts of nasty things. They're simply things that are going on in our hearts. Um, a bit like the parable of the prodigal son, you know, um, doesn't actually tell you about the sins that he's committing. Uh, and yet, when the older brother gets really angry, he says, this son of yours, he says to his father, this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours, who's wasted his time with prostitutes and money? You know, I think, oh yeah, that's right. Because younger brother used to send postcards to older brother telling him what he was up to. No. <laughs> no. It's, that's what the older brother would really have loved to have been doing. In other words, he's just reflecting what's in his own heart. And this is what we see with Eliab. And this is a really key point of this passage. Man is looking on the outward appearance. And Eliab um, uh, is someone who is saying he can look into David's heart. And he can't. I know the presumption and the evil of your heart. You come down to see the battle. How did people respond when they saw Goliath? What were their first words? Don't look at me, look at the passage. What were their words to David when they saw him? Right, that's great, isn't it, Robert? Thank you. So, have you seen this man? Look at the man. Surely. Oh, that's surely. It's a bit like Samuel's. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Oh, surely. You know, he's going to be successful. He is going to be able to reproach God and no one's going to be able to turn him back. Have you seen this man? What's David's response? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should divide the armies of the living God? In other words, everyone thinks, whoa, look at him. He's so important. And David sees him as an upstart. Someone of no significance. In other words, you've got two very different perceptions of people. So we've got Jesse, who looks at commander of the uh, thousand versus the brothers. We've got Eliab, who looks at little David and sees no one of any significance. And everyone looking at, at Saul and thinking how significant they are. Well, of course, after the inquiries, after the reward, um, Saul gets to hear uh, of, of David inquiring after the prize and so uh, Saul um, brings David before him now normally when you go before a king the king speaks first but actually David begins David begins straight off in the speech and he says I'm your servant he says let no one's heart be afraid because of this man now normally when there's a source of fear what you want to do is get rid of the source of fear um, and then no one's afraid so you know you've got someone in the room who's afraid of spiders then you get rid of the spider and then they stop being afraid that's the what what you do But actually what happens here is David says, before anyone's got rid of the Philistine, he says, no one should be afraid. So in other words, everyone should be trusting God in that position when the terror is still around. And Saul looks on David. And what does Saul see? What's his perception of David? Sorry? Just a kid. He looks on the outward appearance, doesn't he? Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And he says, you can't do it. That man's a man of military experience. You're just a kid. David tries on the armor. Now, this sometimes gets portrayed as Saul's armor is far too big, which it probably was, but it doesn't talk about it being far too big. It says he hasn't tested it. There's a tried and tested thing with David, trusting in God. He hasn't (laughs) tried this out. And another side of this, which I really like, is it shows that although David has resolved he's going to fight the Philistine and knows he will kill the Philistine, he doesn't know how. 
The fact that he's trying on the armour means he hasn't actually decided how it's going to happen. The fact that he takes his stick and doesn't have to use it means he doesn't know he's even going to do it with the stone. The fact that he takes five stones means he doesn't know it's going to happen with the first stone. In other words, David knows he has to go and fight the Philistine. He knows the Lord's going to give him victory, but he doesn't know how. Maybe he's going to need that stick. Maybe he's going to have to get into close contact with that Philistine. He's used a stick with the animals before. So, in other words, he's trusting in God. He's, he's got experience, but he really is. It's not that he's um, like um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote in his recent book on um, David and Goliath. I, I think I didn't read it, just skimmed it, but, you know, where he was claiming, oh, yeah, but it's all just trickery. I mean, of course, he, you know, he, he's, he's going to be better off with the sling. Actually, you know, um, Goliath's got some pretty comprehensive armor, and David didn't know he wasn't going to get into hand-to-hand fighting. But David talks about his experience fighting animals. Now, can we just describe what happens when he fights an animal? What's his, what's his method? Yeah, he grabs him by the beard. So first thing you do, when you see the uh, lion or the bear coming, lion and bear make off with little lamb. Just a little lamb. It's not a big one. They always go for the little ones. Okay, so they, they've gone off with lamb. Now, lambs aren't very important, are they? So just let them go. Just let him go off. Um, no, that's not what it says. He actually chases after the lion and bear. Does any, has anyone here chased after a lion or a bear? <laughs> uh, I did actually meet in one of my meetings. I asked someone who said they had actually chased a bear. Okay, but on the whole, not a good idea. I mean, you can imagine in a film, uh, you know, you might, you might get like, well, Tarzan doesn't even chase after lions. I mean, you know, he does fight lions. He doesn't chase after them. You might get a group of people chasing after a lion, but one individual going after a lion, it's a bit mad, isn't it? I mean, chasing after a lion for the sake of a lamb. Now, shouldn't you take a more strategic view? You're a shepherd. If you lose your life, no one's going to be protecting the flock. So really, you need to take a more strategic, long-term view, preserve your energies, not chase after that little lamb. I mean, just let you know, lion go. No, but what's he do? He actually chases after the lion. Next stage is you hit the lion, presumably with a stick. The, that makes the lion release the lamb from his mouth. Okay, great. That means lamb is safe. Uh, but that also means that mouth is free. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, lion uh, turns and you grab it by the, 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 the hair or the mane and kill it. Okay. Great. So don't try this at home. But it's, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? That just the sheer reckless bravery that he does in order to rescue one little lamb. Surely he should have looked on the outward appearance and said, that lamb is not very significant. I need to take the big view. I need to realize that, you know, that lion is a very scary thing and I ought to let that lamb just go off. But no, this good shepherd, like Christ, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, this good shepherd is prepared to lay down his life to rescue that little lamb. And I think it's a great um, challenge to all of us. Um, Many of us do have shepherding responsibility for other people. And so what we see is he's, uh, he's... got this experience, and he's going to fight the Philistine. Uh, and so he goes and uh, fights against the Philistine. But they, they begin exchanging words at a certain distance. Uh, Goliath says he's going to feed uh, the birds with one meal, one body meal. And David is a little bit more confident. He says he's going to um, feed the birds and all the animals. Of course, there would be many carrion uh, feeders uh, around a battlefield. He's going to feed them, uh, in fact, with the entire Philistine army, which is what happens. How can David be so sure? Faith, okay? Faith based on what? Experience. Faith based on his experience. Yeah, okay. Anything else? Sorry? Who God is, yeah. He's got a little bit more feeding into his confidence. One is he knows that God's name needs to be hallowed, if I can go forward to the New Testament. That is, God is really concerned about the honor of his name. Here is someone reproaching his name. Therefore, he knows it's God's will that God's name should not be reproached. And we can always step forward in faith, step forward in faith, because we know it's not God's will that God's name should be held in low value. God wants his name to be honored. We know that. But there's a little bit more. David knew he's indestructible. How? Specific thing. He's God's anointed, which means he's been told by God, you will be king. Is he king yet? No. 
So therefore he knows that until he becomes king, he is totally indestructible. He also knows that because he's the anointed, he is the man that God has chosen. So in a sense, he's not going out on a whim. You know, some people can read this and think, oh, can I just go and fight anyone I like? No. He had specific revelation from God. He was trusting the revelation for God. So for us, an equivalent would be us trusting God's revelation in Scripture. Anything that we have warrant on uh, from God in Scripture, we can go out trusting him for. Doesn't mean that we can trust that God will allow us to have victory in every single battle we choose to fight. Right? So let's remember there are some things we want to follow examples in the Bible, but we don't want to follow examples when that's not an example that is totally applicable to us. Do you see? So we know there's something about a good shepherd laying down life for the sheep. That's not just for Christ. That's also for people who follow him as shepherds. Peter, as a shepherd, uh, also did the same. We also, um, as a shepherd, I mean a shepherd in in the church, did the same. So we know that David has specific revelation from God that this is what he should do. He doesn't know how he's going to kill the Philistine, but he does know that that's what he should do. And then we see that he goes and kills the Philistine, and God fulfills everything through him. Well, it's a remarkable passage, but one of the things we constantly see is people looking on the outward appearance. When um, Goliath sees David... He says he despised him. He looked and he saw he was just a youth. He was ruddy. When Saul saw David, he just saw a youth. When Eliab saw David, he just saw a youth. When Jesse saw the commander of the army, he saw an important person. When David saw the little sheep, the little lamb, he saw something important. Okay, that's the great high point in David's life. What's the low point in David's life? Well, okay, David, what happens with Bathsheba? He, he, he ends up committing adultery and murder. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. So the adultery and murder happen in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let's go, uh, sorry, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Maybe just start with the very last phrase in 2 Samuel 11. But the thing that David had done, this pleased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him, with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Quite striking. David has gone over his life from risking everything for one little lamb to taking the little lamb of someone else. You see, he's gone from shepherd to wolf. Quite a striking thing when you look at David's life, how from such great beginnings he went such a way down. And the Lord restored him, the Lord restored David. But it's a really striking thing for, for, for me when I look at that sort of trajectory. And I think we can see midpoints. It's true that sometimes it seems a bit sudden that David, after doing all these good things, actually uh, sort of falls off the edge and commits adultery and murder. But I don't think it is that sudden. I think you can actually see hints of it earlier in the life of David. Sometimes what the Bible does is it does what you could call paneling. It puts stories adjacent to each other so you can actually see and contrast them. So I'll give you an example. In 1 Samuel 13... Saul is worried that his army is scattering from him. He's going to be left alone. And so he sacrifices before he should, before Samuel's arrived. In the next chapter, Jonathan is not worried that he's alone. He and his armor bearer go up and fight the Philistines. So in other words, you've got uh, two different pictures of being left alone. One lot retreating and doing the wrong thing and the other lot 
doing the right thing. And it's very striking when you put those two things together. Or when you put Jesus and John the Baptist alongside each other, parallel narratives at the beginning of Luke. It's panelling. Now, what you could say happens in uh, David's life is we've got two stories of David sparing Saul. They go in 1 Samuel 24 and 1 Samuel 26. And in 1 Samuel 25, right in the middle, we have the story about how he gets really, really angry with a guy called Nabal, who, for not giving him enough uh, supplies for his men, because he's been looking after his sheep, you see? And he says, well, I've been looking after your sheep, we protected your men, and we need to get a reward for that. In other words, his perception of, um, you know, role of, of shepherd has somewhat altered. And the amazing thing is how he spares Saul and yet is so vengeful towards that other man. And what's amazing is that he doesn't actually carry out what he, will, uh, he said he'll do on that other man, which is kill every single male, because the Lord keeps him back. And what we see is the Lord digging David out of trouble. The Lord rescues him again and again from Saul and is raising him up to be king. But also he's delivering him from his own stupidity. So the stupidity he had when he was going to finish off Nabal in 1 Samuel 25 is uh, he's rescued from that by um, Abigail coming. And of course, but then we see, you know, he takes Abigail as his second wife. Well, that's not a good thing. Then at the beginning of 1 Samuel 27, it says he was suddenly afraid. And he said, you know, one of these days, Saul is going to catch me. Hang on. God's been delivering you all this time. Why are you suddenly faltering in faith? So he goes over to the Philistines and he's telling the Philistines a pack of lies. He's saying every day that he's going out and raiding Judah when he's actually raiding other groups and not leaving any of them alive. Now, I don't think, again, that the Bible is necessarily commending David's actions. And what we see is going on with that is that David is telling a pack of lies, and he's getting to the point where he is going to be expected by Achish, the king of Gath. This will be familiar to some of you, but otherwise just read it. One and two Samuel, just amazing stories. Complex, really worth looking at the details. Is that he is going to be fighting on the Philistine side against Saul, the king of Israel. And it's only again that God delivers him from that. So he's getting himself in a worse and worse situation, and God's delivering him. So in other words, we can see that from such good beginnings, he has not progressed. Many people in the Bible have their finest moments earlier in their life. That's not a rule. There are people like David, uh, Daniel sorry, who really keep going right to the end. But many people in the Bible have their finest moments earlier in their life. And that means that's a, that's a challenge to every one of us. That as we go on, we've got to make sure that we are progressing in the faith. Very easily you can move from that sort of shepherding, self-giving manner to that thought of actually feeding off the flock um, as a wolf does. I mean, that's that's the definition of, of a wolf. A wolf feeds off the flock. A shepherd feeds the flock and looks after the flock. And I think that's a challenge to all of us. So those are um, my overview thoughts. Are there any sort of questions on the passage? And then we're going to try and get some applications from the the other side. Um, Any questions or thoughts? Okay, let's start with this. What about, do you ever feel envious um, of someone else who seems to enjoy more success? What can you do about this feeling? I'm thinking here about Eliab. You see, David's his little brother and is shooting past him. He would have known his little brother was anointed. That's very clear because it says in the last passage, 1 Samuel 16, that Samuel anointed David in front of his brothers. So in other words, Eliab knows full well. Do we ever feel that? Anyone admit to feeling that? You know, someone getting more recognition, success, you know, early on, the same little young guy shooting past. You know, what do we do about that? What's, what's, What's the problem? Is the problem the other guy's success? Yeah, it can be. It can be. <laughs> yeah, well, what's the problem we can deal with? What's in our own hearts? And that's, that's the real uh, lesson we need to take, that, that we need to guard our hearts. Above all things, guard your hearts. From it is the wellspring of life, as it says in Proverbs. So, does anyone experience that? Yeah? So how many are prepared to admit that? Okay, okay. so that's quite a lot that we have to deal with those sort of Eliab feelings. 
that other people are getting credit, recognition, success, whatever it is, and we're not. And how do we feel? What we feel is we know that person's bad motives. I mean, that person is so ambitious. I mean, we're not. You know, and, and so actually, often what's happening is we're simply projecting onto that person's heart our motives. Now, it's not necessarily to say that that person's heart is right, maybe that person's heart is wrong, but be really, really careful before you come to that conclusion because it's not, you know, the Lord sees the heart, we don't. And that's really important just to realize it's only the Lord who sees the heart. And the only person who claims to be able to see into the heart here. It's Eliab, and he's completely wrong. Okay, what about, what's it tell for pe- us for people who are pastoring or in shepherding responsibility? I mean, I think this applies to many of us. Obviously, we have pastors here as well. Great. I mean, I do think that obviously, you know, in a church's size, you know, pastors have to take a big overview um it's a it's a really funny the way parables work in the new testament isn't it because uh, the parables are sort of stated as if they're completely normal and yet they're often really odd like what shepherd is there who has a hundred sheep and loses one who doesn't leave the 99 and you know go after the one and and my response is what shepherd is there who does i mean surely that's just crazy you know the way it's put and the the way it's put is you know, we're not supposed to think, oh, that means the 99 are, you know, left all unguarded, nor are we supposed to supply into the story, oh, and there was a gar- someone who, you know, guarded them. That's overreading the story. What we're supposed to read from the story is that when God pursues after one person, it's as if God's complete focus is on that person. In fact, God's able to do what no other being is doing. I mean, how many of you have read The Lord of the Rings? A few of you have read The Lord of the Rings. There's this great being, bad being, called Sauron, the eye that sees everywhere. And it's just looking for the ring all the time. And then right at the end, the eye, Sauron realizes it's been tricked. And the ring has crept right past his, under his nose, except he doesn't have a nose, um, to the point where the ring can be destroyed. And it talks in this graphic paragraph about how all of the eye's attention suddenly goes on, you know, turns away from where it had been on a battlefield to the point where it's, it's looking for the ring. All of its attention. Now, that's Sauron. Very, very limited. I think God's able to work like this. He's able to give his complete attention to everyone simultaneously. Which is a really mind-blowing thought. Because, you know, we have to think of us actually getting like a share of his attention. But that's not the way it is. You know, so normally with a parent, they've got multiple children. Well, there are times that they have to give their attention to this one and this one and this one sequentially. They can't give their attention all simultaneously. Well, God can. So that's really cool. Um, But what, what does it tell us about shepherding, pastoring? Not to look at the outward appearance. So in other words, maybe this is more of a challenge widely within the culture. I mean, what I can see sometimes coming over here, and it's the same in my own setting, is if you like a VIP culture, where people have decided the relative importance of people and treat them accordingly. And I think we've got a lot of indications in a passage like this that, that you shouldn't do that that we need to be looking after little sheep. Because what if that one little lamb is the one that God, you know, cares about even more? I mean, you know, God's love is towards all. But we may look on the little person, the little shepherd David, and see someone really insignificant. And God sees them as significant. So what if we're, if you like, assigning labels? We're working out the relative importance of people. And God sees the relative importance differently. I mean, and to me, that's a very challenging part of this passage. Now, I'm doing quite a bit of the speaking. I want you to do more. Anyone got any thoughts on this? Anyone want to share with us? We wrap at half past, yeah? Is that right? Okay. Um, right, if one human plus God is a majority, what does that mean about the problems we face? How should we face them? Any thoughts? Don't be shy. I, I know... 
I know it's early in the morning, which might. Yep, that's that's absolutely right. So it's not to do with us. It's not to do with our own strength. And you know, even when David looks back at fighting the lion and the bear, how does David see it? How does David describe his battle with the lion and the bear? The really key thing about it, not the technique. What's he describe? The Lord who rescued me. And that's the key thing. He didn't say, well, I really got really good at, you know, using a sling, all those lonely hours as a shepherd, got pretty good, been practicing a lot with a stick, you know. I mean, I really developed techniques, started with the little lions, you know, and, and, and the cubs and, you know, <laughs> built up. No, the Lord delivered me. And that, that is how he looks back on it, you know, so we can look at his technique, but actually uh, he sees it as God. And therefore, it is only the Lord who can deliver him. And it's the Lord, by the way, who guided the stone. Yes, David had practice, but the Lord was the one who really saw um, that it was effective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. So how can we have the same confidence that David has when we face challenges? Yeah? Leadership. Faith in God first. Mm-hmm. Faith in God first. That's great. So we trust God. How, how, what, what basis do we have for that trust in God? Sorry? His word. So in other words, his revelation. And also, I guess with David... Is the revelation of God. There's also his past experience with God. He has experienced God's faithful hand. So in other words, there is this thing that I think you can get in a faithful Christian life following God, where you can say, I have experienced his faithfulness. Um, you know, I've been in a tight financial corner before, and therefore, and, and the Lord helped me, I can trust at this time. I've been in these difficult situations. And there is that sort of thing where just your personal experience, I mean, you can know it in theory, and that's great. But many of us can testify to how God has been faithful, even at times when we couldn't see it at the time. And that gives you an increased confidence. And then finally, um, how do we look on the outward appearance and what steps are we going to take to stop this? So let's just name and shame uh, some of these ways we look on outward appearance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we sort of assess people pretty quickly, don't we? Yeah. 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 So knowing God's direct relationship with them, yeah. Eric. Yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, 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 that's really helpful. Just a really quick depressing story. Um, that <laughs> I, I, I had uh, someone I knew who uh, worked in an old people's home. And the old people's home was for retired missionaries. And she just said they were awful. You know, I mean, this particular set, I'm not saying they're all awful, but this particular set, because they were all, you know, they had done glorious things in the past. And they weren't thinking that they, you know, in a sense, they wanted to retire. And, and not just have to keep up the fight and keep on keeping on. 
And wouldn't it be nice to say, wow, I've done 50 years of really hard work and now I can just put my feet up spiritually. You know, and so we just, we just mustn't do that. There's, you know, there's, there is no retirement. Well, I hope that wasn't too depressing and some challenging. <laughs> Pastor Greg. Mm-hmm. Because when you just start rushing up against them, you start raking in your mind of, of the things maybe you check off on your category, and some of those are defensive things that think we wish we were, mm-hmm. and so we're mad at them because they are that, like, yeah, yeah. and then some of them are things that, that we, you know, we are too, and we're, we need to remove the plank and show mm-hmm. respect uh, type thing, but I think when you get to know somebody on a different level than their exterior and a deeper level, that helps you a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely great. Thank you. Eric, time's up. No, no, not time's up. I was going to say, I think the basis for us is the grace of God that saves us. If we're called the church, that means we're this cross-centered, cross-shaped community. Mm-hmm. And we are in a world of image management and judgment. We're in that world, and yet we are to bestow the very grace God has given us to each other that we assume the best motives. Mm-hmm. What is said, we have to, I do that in marriage all the time. Mm-hmm. My wife says something, I don't like it, and I get defensive or I get aggressive in, in, in how I reply, as opposed to, where's the grace of God in that? Mm-hmm. I mean, why don't I assume the best to say, hey, honey, what did you mean by fill in the blank with whatever it is that mm-hmm. I just overreacted to? Mm-hmm. And, and in friendships, this happens, and in the workplace, this happens. And so I think, I think part of it is, we become more like Christ when we manifest grace in a world focused on judgment. Ironically, they accuse us of judging, but, but we are to be bestowing grace even in that. And yeah. that God will take care of it. He will. That's great. Thank you. I think time is up. Is that right? So it is. You can sit until keep talking. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, Pastor Doug, you want to wrap this up a little bit? Sure. Can I just give us our closing prayer? Is that all right? That sounds or do you have some announcements you make? Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.